in the 19th century, most inland travel was done by horses. And cities like New York had horse railways that carried thousands and tens of thousands of people every day. And it was the cruelty associated with those horse-drawn trolleys that led a friend and contemporary of Henry Berg, who founded the first SPCA in New York City, to create what he called the horseless trolley, what today we call the cable car. Right. And that actually was in San Francisco. And this was because an animal lover saw the way that horses would strain to pull these very heavy carts up massive hills. Right. San Francisco is very hilly. And sometimes lose their footing on the way down and get injured or killed. Hello and welcome to This Week in Animal Protection. We're the Winograds. I'm Nathan. And I'm Jennifer. Today we will discuss a recent report that finds that in all of human history, things have never been better. We're living longer, richer lives with better access to clean water, education, electricity, and basic human rights than ever before. For most animals, however, the opposite is true. Today is probably the worst period in time to be alive, especially for the species we've domesticated for food, chickens, pigs, cows, and increasingly fish. And it is no coincidence. The report found that human prosperity and animal suffering exist in a kind of twisted symbiosis. Economic growth leads to more food production and consumption, which in turn results in faster population growth and longer life expectancy, which then requires more intensive factory farm meat to satiate growing populations. Although we mentioned this study in a prior week's news roundup, today we're going to take a deep dive, tracking the article Nathan just released called The Best and Worst of Times, explaining why we believe that the combination of growing ethics and technology made possible by market economies provide hope that we can break this perverse symbiosis, so that as we live longer, richer lives, so do animals. We already see that with our companion animals. We believe the rest of the animal kingdom can soon follow. For those who want to skip the news and go straight to that discussion, see the time signature in the attached article. Otherwise, we'll begin with the week's news. So Nathan, last week we reported that PETA called on Killeen, Texas pound staff to continue killing animals rather than embrace readily available cost-effective alternatives to killing. This week they called on Manteca, California officials to do the same. That's right. So Manteca's mayor has come out strongly in favor of the city shelter embracing a no-kill orientation, and he called on city staff to prepare a report on how the shelter can eliminate the killing in the municipal pound. Instead, City staff came back with a report indicating that PETA was opposed to no-kill shelters, claiming, as they did in Killeen, Texas, that those animals should be killed instead. So basically, they were using PETA as political cover to continue killing animals. That's right. But the good news in Manteca, as opposed to Killeen, Texas, is that the mayor was undeterred and, despite the staff report, vowed to push for solutions that will eliminate what he called the short time frame to death for animals that are taken in at the city's shelter. And of course, the No-Kill Advocacy Center has reached out to the mayor of Manteca to offer those solutions. Now, PETA's position, of course, should come as a surprise to nobody. They're in the habit of reaching out to officials and promoting killing of animals in shelters. And in fact, they kill animals themselves. This week was also the anniversary of PETA's theft and killing of Maya. 
On October 18, 2014, two PETA representatives backed their van up to a home in Parksley, Virginia, and threw biscuits to a well-loved and well-cared-for dog named Maya, who was sitting on her porch. They were hoping to lure Maya off her property and give PETA the ability to claim that she was a stray dog at large whom they could legally impound. However, Maya refused to leave the property and, after grabbing the biscuit, ran back to the safety of her porch. One of the PETA representatives was actually caught on a video surveillance camera that the family had installed going onto the porch and taking Maya. And within hours, Maya was dead, illegally killed with a lethal dose of poison, a killing that, in fact, PETA has admitted to. Maya's family would ultimately sue PETA. Nathan, tell us what happened. When the family got home and didn't see Maya on their porch, they checked the surveillance video that they had set up to protect their property and saw the two PETA representatives, who they were familiar with because they had visited them before to talk about things like vaccinations and spay-neuter. So they called PETA and asked for the return of their dog. Initially, PETA denied being on the property, but when Maya's family informed them that they actually saw them on the surveillance video coming onto their property and taking Maya, the person on the phone actually hung up. And a short time later, someone from PETA admitted that they had taken Maya and informed the family that she was dead. And Maya was not alone. In fact, we know that several other animals were taken from that trailer park on that day and killed by PETA, which continues a long pattern of PETA rounding up to kill thousands of animals every year. That's right. And the difference between Maya and these other animals is while PETA admits they take in and kill thousands of animals, PETA's records and government records prove that they take in and kill thousands of animals every year. Inspections by the state veterinarian prove that PETA kills thousands of animals every year. What we had in this case was PETA taking an animal against the will of the family, actually trespassing on their property and stealing the dog, and then illegally putting the dog to death because the family had installed video surveillance, which PETA apparently was not aware of. They would sue PETA, alleging theft, trespass, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. PETA asked the court to throw out the lawsuit based on several questionable claims, Probably the most outrageous one was that Maya was legally worthless because she was just a dog, which is a curious claim for an organization that raises $60 million a year from animal-loving people by pretending that they believe that animals are valuable and should be cared for. Nonetheless, they filed a brief with the court arguing that because Maya was unlicensed, she wasn't worth anything, citing a law that was passed in the 19th century that required a dog to be licensed before someone can get compensation if the dog is killed. That law had been repealed in 1966, over 50 years ago. And not surprisingly, the court rejected PETA's motion and after losing that and other motions, PETA ultimately ended up paying Maya's family $49,000. And we know about PETA's behavior as it relates to killing animals, not only because of the government documents, um, PETA's own statements, the founder of PETA, Ingrid Newkirk, has admitted that they kill healthy animals, but also because of the statements made by PETA employees, not only about things that they have witnessed, but things that they have themselves participated in in terms of killing animals. 
including their claim that killing animals is standard operating procedure and that they have, in fact, been encouraged to lie to people in order to acquire their animals by promising that they would find them homes, knowing full well that as soon as those animals were taken back to PETA's headquarters, they would be immediately killed without ever being offered for adoption. And those government documents, admissions by PETA, records published by the Virginia Department of Agriculture every year that oversees shelters showing that PETA in fact kills upwards of 99% of all the animals they acquire while only adopting out about 1% and then primarily to staff. The admissions of PETA employees, some of which have spoken on the record, some of which spoke to me on condition of anonymity, and the court records in in this case led to a series of articles I wrote about Maya's killing, and those articles and others led to the publication of our book, Why PETA Kills. Why PETA Kills tells the story of Maya and the tens of thousands of others who have died at their hands, a number that we know continues to increase by the thousands every year. And of course, publication of Why PETA Kills, which does include the accounts of PETA employees, led PETA to actually sue you. Right. They issued a subpoena asking me for the names of the PETA employees who spoke to me on condition of anonymity. Now, keep in mind that the statements made by those employees confirmed what the government documents, what government inspections, what PETA's own statements, what published statistics, and what whistleblowers who spoke on the record indicated as to what is going on behind closed doors at PETA. But I refused to release the names of those people who spoke to me on condition of anonymity. We fought about it in court. And this lawsuit became of great interest to organizations that fight for the rights, the First Amendment rights of reporters. And the two organizations came to your defense. What, what were those organizations? The Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, which was started by Ben Bradley. He was the editor of the Washington Post during the period of the Pentagon Papers and Nixon's resignation and the Press Freedom Defense Fund both contributed to my legal defense and we won and in fact broke new ground in California by extending what's called the reporter's shield privilege, which allows reporters to protect the names of their confidential informants and extended that to non-traditional media digital publications, blogs, and the like. Well, that is good news. And the mayor of Manteca holding firm against PETA and encouraging killing at the local shelter is also good news. Right. The bad news, unfortunately, is that PETA has killed at least 44,272 animals that we know of, and the number continues to go up. And in other news relating to the First Amendment, Tofurky has scored another legal victory in its lawsuit challenging an Arkansas state law prohibiting plant-based meat companies from using meat terminology on their product labels, just in time for Thanksgiving. That's right. And several states have passed laws making it illegal for companies that sell plant-based meats from using terminology like meat and cheese. But in the case of Tofurky's challenge, a federal court ruled that the law violates the First Amendment. And we know that Tofurky also won similar rulings in Mississippi, Oklahoma, Missouri, and Louisiana. Those cases are on appeal, but the outcome is not likely to change. And speaking of plant-based foods, 
in select Washington, D.C. and Virginia stores. Starbucks is testing new vegan items. Nathan, what are the items that Starbucks is going to start selling that are plant-based in Washington, D.C.? Well, they've added six vegan items to their menu, but the two that sounded the most delicious to me were a plant-based chicken sausage and pepper sous vide bite and a chicken sausage and pepper sandwich. So if you live in uh, Washington, D.C., can you please go to Starbucks and support these products so that they come here to California yes, as well? Yes. If they're successful in Washington, D.C. and Virginia, they're likely to be rolled out nationally. Please buy early and buy often. <laughs> and more news from the East Coast. A love of dogs may be the deciding factor in who becomes the next U.S. senator from Pennsylvania. This race has been getting a lot of attention for many reasons, but the most recent one is that Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, the Democratic candidate, is calling Republican Dr. Mehmet Oz, his challenger, a puppy killer. Right. A new report accuses Dr. Oz of killing over 300 dogs after having, quote, inflicted significant suffering on them and other animals, often in violation of the Animal Welfare Act during his time doing animal research at Columbia University. The university paid thousands in fines to settle allegations after an internal investigation of Oz's research. Oz is endorsed by Donald Trump. And this last discussion, before we get to our main discussion, sort of ties into the topic that we are going to be covering. The Biennial Living Planet report by the World Wildlife Fund was released and finds that wildlife populations have plunged by an average of 69% in just under 50 years. It blames the direct exploitation of animals, deforestation, pollution, and climate change. But the decline is uneven. Of note, advanced economies such as North America and Europe saw the least decline, 20 and 18% respectively, while developing countries like those in Africa and Latin America saw the greatest, 66% and 94% respectively. Nathan, tell us more about the study. So the report is very concerning in terms of noting the significant decline in wildlife populations across the world. In terms of our main discussion today, it's very interesting that the level of decline is less in advanced economies than it is in developing economies, and also that World Wildlife Fund says technological advancements will actually help stem some of the losses. And again, we see that in the advanced economies of North America. What would be interesting to note is that if this was maybe 100 years ago, it would have been the opposite, that you certainly would have seen a declines of wildlife life populations in those countries that were going through industrialization as opposed to those countries that were not because the threats were not as, as large to animals in countries where there wasn't that sort of intensive industrialization. That's absolutely right. And again, that feeds into our primary discussion, as you noted in your introduction, as humans have prospered economically, and that historically has meant industrialization, animals were the one to suffer. But what we're seeing now is a decoupling of human prosperity and animal harm in advanced economies, and we're going to explore the reasons why. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this 15-minute sample of This Week in Animal Protection. The entirety of this week's news and our main discussion are available only to subscribers. If you want to listen to this podcast and future episodes in their entirety, please subscribe at nathanwinograd.substack.com.